like I said, due to, due to some kind of mix-ups and, and planning, and um, John's just not very very good organizationally, um, and so we will be in Psalm 15 uh, this morning, Psalm chapter 15. Um, if you have heard me complaining for about the last year that I had lost my Bible, I've had this Bible for probably 20 or so years, turns out it was stolen from me by some thieving members of our congregation who lovingly sent it off to be rebound. Uh, so praise the Lord, it has come back to me. That was, uh, I was surprised by, by my own reaction to that. I cried a little bit. Um, when I saw it again, but this thing has been connected to me for, you know, a couple of decades, and uh, I think it was gone for about a year. Um, March 28th, I have so many apologies to make to Hilton and Delta about my constant haranguing them over where my Bible might be, but uh, I'm glad to be rejoined with my friend. That said, Psalm chapter 15, we'll read together, and by together, I mean I'll read and you won't. I just didn't want it to be awkward, like someone was going to start reading with me, and that was going to annoy me. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right, and speaks truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor? nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. This is the word of God. morning. Psalm 15 is what we're speaking about today. It's a psalm of David. Seventy plus psalms in the, in the psalm book are written by David or attributed to David that he has written. We don't know exactly when this particular psalm was written or under the exact conditions uh, that they were written. Uh, a number of the psalms would, uh, would indicate uh, what was happening to David at the time. For example, you might find Psalm 3, which would say when he was being pursued by Absalom, right? Uh, would be one that would give some, uh, some uh, would vector us in into what is being happened. Or, you know, Psalm 18, for example, if you just look at that, the, uh, in the Hebrew, it would be the first verse that would say, for the choir director, a Psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all the enemies and from the hand of Saul, and he said. So a psalm like that gives you uh, much, uh, gives you uh, the, the background about where it's at. Whereas this psalm, it's just, we could say this is the description of that, the resident of Zion, the, the resident that will be there with the Lord, the one who will live in the holy place with God. David's life, certainly we, well, again, without knowing exactly when this was, but we do know that throughout his life he faced many trials and tribulations. 
I mean, when we think back to just Absalom himself, his son is seeking to kill him. Most of us have not experienced that in this, in this room. Most of us have not experienced the son who had an army behind him. Right? We also know that David as a young man had faced Goliath when nobody else would. We also know that David had the king himself pursuing him, Saul. A myriad of times. We know that David had had opportunity to kill Saul at various times and didn't do it. Yet Saul continued to pursue. David was well acquainted with who the Lord was. Perhaps more so than we are in this day. So we will approach this psalm thinking about David and his life. And then we're going to look at the psalm. We're going to look at the what is happening or what, he, what he's talking about here. And then we're going to apply it to us today. Remember, that's the way we study the Bible. We observe, interpret, and apply. We look and see the Scripture and we think to ourselves, is this uh, a normative pattern that is being put forward to us, or is this just something that is being said for that particular time? In this case, we're going to see this is normative. The citizen of Zion. The citizen of God's holy place. The the person that will be with God in the end. What that person looks like. A description thereof. Of him. A good idea to keep in mind too is that the Psalms are great to study. The Psalms, where I think it was either Martin Luther or John Calvin who would have said that the Psalms are the little Bible. I think it's Luther who said it. The Psalms are the little Bible. The, 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 and you can find the entirety of the Christian life within the Psalms. So that's why they're important to study. So we'll start there in verse 1 of Psalm 15. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may live in your dwelling place? Who may be in that most holy of places that is there? It says, who may dwell on your holy hill? This this place, this holy hill where you're at, a question that may not have an answer. Because God is so holy. There is none like the Lord. The one who dwells in inapproachable light. The one who light comes from, the, the, the uncreated light of His holiness. We could stop right there and we would know that David is intimately familiar with not only the holy place, but the construction of the holy of holies. What the priests do there. And I want you to picture this. If we go the whole way back to Exodus, If we go the whole way back to Mount Sinai, we see an image that is very much like the temple itself. And we're just, you know, just a flyover view of this, and then we're going to bring it into the temple and this holiness of God, right? So what does that temple look like? Remember, there is, you can almost see three levels of of Mount Sinai, right? So where the people could approach at the bottom and get no closer, they would be killed. Then the priest could go only so far with Moses, right? Midway level. 
And then Moses himself could only go to the top where it was shrouded in darkness. Right? And remember when Moses did that that one time and he came back and his face had to be covered? After he had viewed God as he passed by, held in the cleft of the rock by the Lord, saved by the Lord being held in there. And when he came down, that his face shone so brightly that people could not look upon it. They were terrified by what that, just that, even seeing the backside of the Lord, how, what, how that had changed him. That the Lord's holiness, when Moses was with him on the top of the mountain, all the observers could see from far away was dark clouds. Dark clouds that hemmed in the, the light and the holiness of the Lord. Dark clouds that hemmed in that holiness of God that were to break out would kill all those who would experience it. We see those images in the temple. Okay? You see the outer courtyard, the holy place, and the holy of holies, right? As you, as you progress through into levels of holiness, right? The, the holy of holies, once a year, only by one priest that could go in behind the, the thick cloth that, that surrounded the Ark of the Covenant. They would go and they sprinkle the blood in there, and then the presence of the Lord would come upon one year. That, that, that shroud, that cloth that went around the Holy of Holies, that kept the glory of the Lord, the lightness of the Lord inside, were it to break out, all that would experience it would be slain. For no one can look upon the Lord and live. So it's a valid question that David asked, who may abide in your tent? Lord, you are so holy. You are so different than us. Who could possibly be in your presence? Who could be in that holy place where you are at? You have said that we will dwell there with you, but who could actually do that? Because we are so different from you. There's not a holy part about me. There's not a holy part about David. There's not a part of me that has not been affected or shows the scars of sin. Same as everybody who's here. I mean, God demands perfection to be in that place with Him. He demanded a blood sacrifice for that one moment during the year that they could come into His presence where He would manifest Himself, that manifestation above the horns of the altar. Uh, the horns of the, uh, of the Ark of the Covenant. And if it wasn't done right, if there was something wrong with the sacrifice, then more than likely the priest that went in was killed in that presence of the Lord because it had not been satisfied what was required to be there. So who may abide in your tent, God? Who? may dwell on that holy hill with you. What does that person look like? Now, interestingly, if we had had time, we would have gone into Psalm 14 when he talks about the folly of the wicked men. The absolute opposite of who may dwell in the temple of the Lord. We're going to read it. We're not going to talk too much about it, but just to give us the opposite of who may dwell with the Lord before we get further into 15, it says in verse 1 of 14, the fool has said in their heart, there is no God. The denier of the Lord. 
the atheist. They are corrupt and they have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. No, not even one. Do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great dread, for, the God, for God is with the righteous generation. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his captive people, Jacob will rejoice, Israel will be glad. And, and then immediately David's next psalm is, Who may dwell there with you, Lord? Who could possibly be in that holy hill? Who could be there in your presence, Lord? What is the one? Who is the one that can be there? Think about, look at Psalm 24. Oh, it's great to hear pages turn. I just love that. That is, the, that is just awesome to hear Bibles turning. One of the things that truly lifts my heart up. In Psalm 24 and verse 3, it says, the similar question of David, it says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, and who may stand in His holy place? That question of who may do, who may be there. So in Psalm 15, verse 2, he gives us an idea. He who walks with integrity, and who works righteousness, and who speaks truth in his heart. He who walks with integrity, who works righteousness, and who speaks truth in their heart. That is the one. The one who is walking in integrity and working in righteousness and speaking in truth. The one whose life demonstrates these things. This is one of those things that uh, these, this, we could say that this is an overall look in verse 2 there of a big view of what this looks like. Walking in integrity, working in righteousness, speaking in truth. The question was, who can be with you, Lord? Well, it's somebody that looks like you, Lord. It's somebody who does what you do, Lord. It's somebody who embodies those things that you embody. Your character, Lord. Look back to the Ten Commandments and you'll see these things that are there. Integrity, righteousness, truth. The Lord has already said that this is the requirement. This is what you're called in obedience to, to be like this. This is what you're supposed to look like as a believer of me. You're, if you claim to believe in me as the Lord God, then you must act like I act. You must do the things that I do. You must demonstrate the things that are part of my character. You mustn't just talk about having integrity. You actually have to walk the walk. 
You can't talk about doing works of righteousness. You actually have to walk that walk. You can't tell me that you deal in the truth. You actually have to speak the truth. You have to demonstrate the same things that I do. That being in this manner. Now I want to go into verse 3 because verse 3 is a more detailed restatement of verse 2 in a reverse order. So if we walk with integrity, works with righteousness, speaks speaks truth in the heart in verse 2, then verse 3, we would say, he does not slander with his tongue. That is what it looks like to speak truth from the heart. Nor does he do evil to his neighbor. That's what it looks like with works of righteousness. Nor does he take up reproach against his friend. That's what it means to walk with integrity. He's given this broad view of what it looks like. And then he said, and this is what a small example of what that looks like. You know, you don't, this person who would dwell with the Lord, he doesn't, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't slander others. He doesn't tear down others with his words. And we can, we know that it's pretty easy to do, right? We know that's probably our easiest method to, uh, to, to act in. I think back to the, the story of my grandfather, my father's father. He was, uh, I don't think he, I don't think he went to school past sixth or seventh grade. Um, his mother had passed away. His father had died. Or excuse me, his mother had passed away. His father had remarried. Uh, and for all intents and purposes, for from his viewpoint, the stepmother was that evil stepmother. And he ran away from home uh, when he was in what would the equivalent would be for our middle school. And uh, after running away from home, he went to an uncle's place. He slept in the chicken coop for a year, being there. Uh, so he came back around for a while. But she never spoke kindly of my grandfather. And that's well known in the family. Yet on his, But he never spoke unkindly of her. Never heard him speak a bad word about his stepmother. And then I know that when in her dying days, when his father had passed away and she was the one that was left, that not only did he attend to her every day, but she was the one that he asked for. Never a slanderous word from his mouth about her. Now, I'm not saying that my grandfather was sinless, but what I'm saying is that there is something something about walking the walk that is here that David is talking about. He said this person that would abide in that tent of the Lord, that would be in his holy hill, would be the one that does not slander with his tongue. Would be the one that does not stand around the water cooler. If we have those things anymore. I mean, nobody's working at the office anymore. I guess it's not, you know, but would not tear down those neighbors. Would not tear down those co-workers. Would not speak ill of them. That would be the example. 
And then he says, nor does evil to his neighbor. That's the one who, 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 who works in righteousness. He, he doesn't do evil to the neighbor. He doesn't seek to do bad things to the neighbor. He does not seek to take money from the neighbor, uh, uh, steal from them. He doesn't seek to be that person that wrongs the neighbor. Now remember, these are big pictures. These are big, broad scopes of things that are going on here. David is writing this. This is a song that he's writing out. He's answering his own question. Who can dwell with the Lord? Well, these are the things, what it looks like. The broad scope of the person that, that would be in this manner. The, the broad scope of the person that would, that would be able to dwell with the Lord would look like this. Because you know he knows that there's a problem. He knows that we are not perfect. Because then he says, then he says, nor takes up reproach against his neighbor. Nor does he, he doesn't treat his neighbor with scorn. He doesn't, he, he doesn't, he, he doesn't go against his neighbor. He doesn't look at his neighbor as not created by God. No. He has said that this is what the person that will dwell in his holy place, that answers the question, walks with integrity, works in righteousness, speaks the truth, this person doesn't slander, doesn't do evil, and doesn't act in scorn. That's what that person looks like. But that's a problem, right? I know it's a problem for me. I know when we think about these things that it's all well and good. Some of the time, most of the time, but catch one of us on a bad day. And we certainly can slander our neighbor. We can certainly act with scorn towards somebody, even somebody we love. We can certainly speak untruths from our heart. It's a problem for us. It's a problem that we have to deal with. David said the similar things in, Psalm, uh, in that Psalm 24, verses 3-6. through six. He gives those ideas. You don't even need to turn there. I'll read it very quickly. We read the 3, and then in 4 says, the person who, who will dwell in that holy place is this. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. If you have that, raise your hand. There's not a one that's standing on the face of this planet who can do that. It's a problem. And look, look what, he, look what he, David follows up with in 24. Who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. It says this is the person who will receive a blessing from the Lord. Well, I don't think there's anybody on this planet who can do that. David knows it's a problem. David knows the sinfulness of his own heart. This could have been written before or after Bathsheba. Let's, but let's, do a, let's do a thought example. Let's say it was written after the incident with Bathsheba. Let's say it was written after the time that he, he viewed her bathing on the roof and he lusted after her and he manipulated the situation so he could have her. Right? She gets pregnant. The baby dies. He's confronted by Nathan, who tells him a very poignant story who David must be very dull at the moment that he's hearing the story, right? Until he realizes it's him. He realizes how far away he is. So look at Psalm 32. We're just staying in the Psalms, not for the whole day, but we're going to stay there for a little bit. 
Mm, look at this. David saying this, it says in verse 1, it says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Let me read that again. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So David does know what's required. He knows that to be this person, to be this demonstration of what this walking, speaking, working person looks like, to embody what that looks like requires forgiveness, requires the covering of sin, Requires the blood upon the horns of the ark. Right? Requires a sacrifice to be given. Requires something more than he can do in his own person. Right? I mean, he would know the pre. He would know, maybe speaking with the priest, what it was like to stand in the presence of the Lord. There to stand in, in, in what that was, was like, the, the requirements, the physical requirements just for that once a year. And when David puts this psalm out there, this Psalm 15 within, it, you, we can almost see a cry out there, who, Lord, may be that person? And we can say then that is, it's not me, Lord, because I, I have, there's times I have not walked with integrity. I haven't worked righteousness. I haven't spoken truth in my heart. We certainly can see that with the, the events that go around Bathsheba. We can certainly see some of the activity that went around when he was pursued by Saul. He knows he's not this person. He knows he's not the perfection that we see in verses 2 and 3 there. He knows when we see in Psalm 32 that, it, that forgiveness is required. That something else is required to be this person. And if we did that thought experiment, if we, we took it just a little bit further, we would say to ourselves that a person who writes this psalm in this manner has to be writing it from a position where they know where they stand before the Lord. And I say that because of this. When, when we don't, when we are not believers, when we don't follow the Lord, when we don't look at our scriptures, we don't question who can dwell with the Lord. We don't question what his holy hill is like. Those thoughts don't come to us about what it would be like to be in the Lord's presence. Do they? I can tell you this is, you know, as uh, you know, as as uh, a worker of iniquity, right? Uh, we are all experts in sin, by the way. It's almost like we're 
not only born into it, but we're profession, professionals at it. We can find all sorts of ways to sin, look upon the world, and we can find ways to do that. That's our natural state, is in sin. But a person to consider the holiness of God and His holy hill would be a person that knows or trusts in the salvation that will be offered through the Lord. Right? That's a person who has pondered this question from the position of knowing the Lord's promises. Think about David's experience with the ark itself. Think about the experience of that young man when they were transporting the ark back to the temple. Think about when they were moving the ark on the cart in a way which they weren't supposed to move it after it had sat in the home of Abinadab for 20 years. Remember the uh, the Philistines had taken it. They had sat it in front of the, uh, their god Dagon. And the god eventually, parts fall off and then the whole thing falls down. Then people were getting, not only there were rats throughout the land, but people were getting tumors because of the ark. They decide to send it back to the Israelites. Right? When the Israelites get it, they promptly... Uh, decide to open it, and it says, I think the number is about 50,000 are dead, or I think it's between 20 and 50,000 are killed, and they decide to open up the ark and they get it back, even though they know they're not supposed to. So then they park it in Abinadab's house for 20 years. Then his son, uh, his one son is in a priestly role in the household, but here's the ark sitting in somebody's house. Imagine it's sitting in your living room, right? This is where it's at. Maybe they got a sheet over it. Who knows? It doesn't tell us. It's not important. But what is important is that the son Uzzah is there too. When David decides to bring the ark back to the temple, they load it on a cart against the ordinance of God. It was supposed to be carried by the priests. It was supposed to be holes through the rings that were on the side. They were supposed to carry it. But they throw it on an ark just. Uh, they throw it on a cart just like the Philistines had done. They're taking it through the threshing floor, which would be outside the town where it's at, the the threshing floor where you take the grain and stuff. There's also a place where, uh, think about this for a second, there's also a place where judgment occurred in a town because everybody know where the threshing floor is at. That's where people met. And if there's illegal proceedings, that's where you have it. So isn't it interesting that they're taking the ark the wrong way? They're going through the threshing floor. It tells us, we get this. Uh, we get the. Uh, we get the account. Uh, the one. The one account says that the that the oxen stumbled. There's young Uzzah. He's seen the ark for his probably almost his entire lifetime in the household. He's been sitting over there in the corner. The ark is on the cart. And his first encounter with the holiness of God is his last encounter in this life with the holiness of God. He reaches out to prevent the ark from stumbling and he's immediately struck dead. Killed at that moment. It would say, and the, the Hebrew there would say that, uh, they, that, that God's anger was hot against him. How dare you touch, not only are you guys transporting the wrong way, but how dare you deign to touch this thing which you can't, which you're forbidden from touching. You, you haven't even approached it in the right way. And it occurs right there where judgment would occur. There's an instantaneous judgment call because God is so holy at that place 
And David is there. Remember, they're dancing and they're singing and they're doing all sorts of things which are not representative of the holiness of God. And the man reaches out and he touches it and he's struck dead right there. And David's immediate response is, how can anyone come before the Lord? Who can do it? He just touched this thing we created that he told us to create. He, to- he, he just touched this thing doing the best he could to keep it from falling and he was immediately struck dead. That's how holy the Lord is. How dare you touch this in this manner? I've given you enough forgiveness to allow you to transport a how far, far of a distance on a cart. But this transgression will not be forgiven. This transgression will require immediate judgment. And Uzzah is struck dead. And David cries out, who can approach the Lord? And then we have this question, who can abide in your tent, God? Who may dwell in your holy hill? Because David has intimate experience with not doing it the right way. He knows that it requires a perfection that is unattainable in this life. It will require the forgiveness of God and a life that is led into sanctification. Walking the walk. That you must walk in this manner. If you say you love the Lord, you must walk like this. You must walk with integrity, work in righteousness, speak the truth of heart, don't slander, don't do evil against your neighbor, and don't take reproach against your friend. That means when you're wronged, it's not your problem. It's God's problem that you were wronged. When someone speaks wrongly against you, it's not about putting your fists up and punching them in the face. It's saying that exactly where you're at is exactly where God wants you to be at. And He'll take care of it in His time when He desires to do so. Because He is the Holy One, not you. You are knowing that your salvation is found in the Lord, knowing that your transgressions are forgiven in the Lord, knowing that your iniquities have been covered in the Lord through the blood of Christ. That you are to walk with integrity, to work in righteousness, speak in truth, not slander, don't do evil against the neighbor, and don't speak in scorn about a friend. We spoke about this in the Sunday school class this morning. We were talking about marriage. It isn't about what the other person can do for me. It's about me acting in this manner that glorifies the Lord. Regardless of what the other person does. David knows that. I would argue that he knows intimately that. The lessons that have been recorded about David's life would speak to that. And who knows what else happened in his life that have brought him to this part. Who may abide in your tent, Lord? Who may dwell on your holy hill? Who is worthy of being in that place? The one who's been forgiven, the one who walks in these manner, this manner. In verse 4 it tells us, it says, in whose eyes the reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. Think about what he's saying there. He, he, he's saying there he, he has no, no tolerance for those, uh, for those who are acting in evil. It doesn't say he's bringing judgment against him, but he's saying, yeah, I have no tolerance to even play around with those things. I, my life, I, I, I constantly have got to repent and turn back to, to righteous living. I've got to turn away from, from the evilness in there. When the, when the guys want to go out to the bar, I'm not going with them. 
right? Because I know what that will take me into. When, when people desire to do this thing, when the guy at work says, hey, you know, if you just change these numbers a little, little bit, we can make a little bit more money. They'll never know what they're missing. These other people in this account. I can't do that. I have no time for that. I, I, have, I don't even want to look at those things. I don't even want to attempt it because I know how wicked my heart is. I know how quickly I could turn towards things of unrighteousness. Because I want that question, who may abide in the tent? Who may abide in the holy hill? I want it to be me. Because the opposite of the holy hill and the righteous place is hell and damnation for an eternity. I'd far rather be, I'd far rather live in a manner that looks like this, that demonstrates all the salvation that has been given to me through the Lord and through His works, through the work of Christ on the cross. I'd much rather live like that than to fall back into old patterns and risk eternal damnation. He knows these things. David knows these things. And he says here, he, I, this person swears to their own hurt and does not change. This person will not change their viewpoint or the way they're walking, regardless if it brings about injury or death. This is the person... certainly not in my notes, but I just can't help but think. Let's bring it forward. Let's bring it to the New Testament for a second. Let's just, let's just fast forward hundreds of years to a person that would know the, this psalm, to a person that we know about, <laughs> we're going to focus on he swears to his own hurt and does not change. This is the person of integrity, right? The person who desires to be truthful, right? The, the person who desires to, uh, to, to represent the God who he worships, right? And I read that in a person I can't help but think of that may help us to understand is Peter himself. When he was questioned on that night, when he was standing before the burning brazier, right? When the other people were there, when the young lady cries out, weren't you with them? You were with him. And Peter doesn't swear to his own hurt. He utters curses unto himself, denying the truth. I would guarantee that Peter knew this psalm. I would also almost guarantee that there was part of his redemptive process that he was brought through. Remember, the devil asked to sift him like wheat, and Jesus said, I, will, I have prayed for you. When you come back, you will build up the brothers. I could only imagine how Peter would preach this psalm knowing the moments that he didn't walk with integrity or righteousness or speak the truth, knowing the times when he slandered and he did evil and he spoke of reproach, all of which that he did towards the Lord himself, his Savior. How he would look at those words like these and say, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, and he would say, I was that reprobate. 
but who honors those who fear the Lord. And Peter would say that I did not fear the Lord at that moment. That I denied my Savior. I, in turn, I feared men. And when he would read, he swears to his own hurt and does not change. That certainly wasn't me. But oh, how thankful he was for a Savior that redeems. Right? The Savior that David himself would be looking forward to. The Savior Jesus, who David wouldn't know by name, but who would write psalms about this Savior who was coming. Those messianic psalms, especially Psalm 110 that is in there. The, as David looks forward, prophesying about the coming of the Messiah, the, uh, the one whose enemies will be a footstool, the, the earth itself will be a footstool for his feet, the, the one who he trusts in, the one who he finds his iniquity will be washed away in, the one whose blood who he will be covered in, for the ones in the Old Testament who are saved are also saved by the blood of the Lamb. The only lamb that could do it. We can't help but think of these men who didn't walk in this manner, but the more maturity that they came in their life and knowing the Lord, the more they walked like this. The more they walked with integrity. The more they worked righteousness. The more they spoke truth in their heart the more they did not slander, and they did not do evil, and they did not speak scorn. The more they despised the wicked, and they feared the Lord, and they even confessed the Lord to their own demise. When we look at those verses and we think about what David is speaking and what we see and I would like us to turn to 1 Thessalonians 4 and we think about this call to personal holiness because remember, sanctification, uh, our walking the walk does not save us. It's Jesus who saves us. We walk the walk because of what He has done. Because we recognize how far away we are and because... Of what he has done, we desire to be more like him. So look at 1 Thessalonians 4. John, I think we changed where that was at in your Bible. So you might have to hunt around for it. 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul speaking. Paul, intimately familiar with this Psalm 2. Probably memorized in his life. He could repeat it. Uh, verbatim in Hebrew. Probably could do it in Greek too. And 1 Thessalonians 4.1, speaking to the church of Thessalonica, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, and that you excel still more, we could stop right there and say, look, it, it, we live lives, or we, our desire is to live a life of growing sanctification. Yes, we're going to stumble. Yes, we're going to sin. Yes, we're going to fall. But we know who our Savior is, and we desire more and more to know Him. We desire more and more, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna, our lives are going to be bound in this book. 
We're going to look to this book to see how to live. As we spoke in Sunday school class, we're going to look at this book and see, oh, this is what marriage looks like, not what the world tells me. I'm going to tell you right now, that marriage, for example, marriage is not what you see in movies. Marriage is self-sacrificial what you see in here, in what you see in how Jesus in the church is. That's what marriage is. So when Paul says here, as you excel still more, look what he says too. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you become more and more like Him. That you live a life that is more and more representative of who the Lord is. We could ask the question in this manner. If you say you love the Lord, why doesn't anything in your life look like it? If you say you love the Lord, why are you looking at pornography every day? Because the Lord says that everybody that is created is created in His image. So why are you treating that like, uh, why are you treating people like an object? If you say you love the Lord, why are you stealing from your neighbor? Why are you bitter towards people in your life when the Lord says that's my job for it's my job for that revenge idea, not yours. You're to love others even if you aren't being loved by them. If you say you know Jesus as Lord and Savior and your life doesn't represent it, I don't think you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You might know something, but I doubt you're saved. And you're not going to dwell in the holy hell. You'll dwell in eternal darkness and eternal damnation. I mean, the walk should look, it should start to look like, however the small steps are, should start to look more and more like his life. To walk with integrity, to not slander, to not deal in reproach. Right? That's what it should be like. I'm not speaking about perfection. But what I am speaking about is a life that looks more and more like his life. And that's what Paul's saying. You know the commandments by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And if we were to stop right there, we would say, this is the will of God. This isn't optional. This isn't something you can ignore. This is God's will, the holy God's will. God who is righteous and holy says, this is what you should do. You should be working out your sanctification. You abstain from sexual immorality that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. To get mad at somebody because they wronged you, I highly suggest you let go of it pretty quickly. It will embitter your heart. It will make you a heart of stone. It will take away blessings that the Lord has given to you if you dwell on some somehow you've been wronged by somebody. Because guess what? You have no right to be non-wronged. Listen, it's not your place. Whatever is happening to you is for your growth as a Christian, as a Christ follower. It is best for you by the Lord to learn how to let go of those things because the more you hang on to that bitterness, the more of a bitter person you will be. 
the more your sanctification will be difficult to do, the more you'll step away from the Lord. No man transgress, transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Part of this seems like Paul is preaching right out of Psalm 15. This person who Paul is speaking of in verse 5 would say he does not put out his money at interest. This, uh, you know, he nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. How you handle your money reflects what you believe. So we could say this, as the time is quickly running. If we were to look at it in verse two, we would say your your demonstration of your your of the sanctification that's happening in your life, right, as you become more and more like him. Uh, in verse two uh, a would be you know our daily action, right, walking with integrity, working in righteousness. Uh, verse 2b and 3a would be how we speak. We speak truth from the heart and we don't slander with our tongue. Right? And then uh, verse uh, 3b and c, it says we don't work in evil. It's a, it, we would say there, we, uh, we don't do evil against our neighbor. We don't treat our, our friends scornfully. And then verse 4a and b, it would be we glorify God. We we we. We despise those who hate the Lord and we honor those who fear the Lord. We're glorifying God in those things that we do. Right? And then in verse uh, 4c, it says, We swear to our own hurt and does not change. That is, we are living humbly in humility. And then these things also come out in verse 5a and b, where it says, we don't put our money at interest, nor, and I'm not talking about making interest on money because Jesus talks about this. What they're talking about is a, a time of, of taking, of uh, predatory nature of interest that people have. Okay, that people tend to, tend to make money. All you have to do is look at some of these credit cards, right? You'll see predatory interest. interest. But uh, he says, you don't put your money out at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. How we handle our money demonstrates what we believe. And then what happens? What, is, what, is, what, is, what does David say? He says, the one who does these things will never be shaken. He just simply ends it in, in, in 5C there. He who does these things will never be shaken. So in your life, you know the salvation that you have, that God has done through His Son, right? And you start living like this. You start working like this. You start speaking truthfully to your own harm. You're not tearing people down. You're not hardening your own heart by your actions. You're treating your money wisely. You're walking with integrity, right? You won't be shaken. Because I can guarantee you, when you start walking back in patterns of sin, you will be shaken. Your confidence in your salvation will be shaken the more you walk in sin. The more you choose to willfully walk in sin, you will be shaken. 
David says, if I, if I set my eyes on these things, if I set my eyes to walking and talking and acting in this manner, even to my own demise, I won't be shaken because I know that my dwelling place is on the holy hill in Zion with the Lord. That's my confirmation as I do those things. This is where we find our assurance of salvation in the way we walk. I know that I'm saved by the blood of the Lamb. I know that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And so my salvation, my assurance of salvation, is demonstrated through the way I walk. Through my daily living is demonstrated the assurance of my salvation. We are to take responsibility for our sanctification. We don't just sit on the, the, the recliner and sanctification comes upon us. We are supposed to work it out. As Paul would say in Philippians, work out our, our, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Right? Know that we have to answer to a righteous and a holy God. Know that to, to not be working out our sanctification, to not be working out our own personal holiness is to leave us in a very desperate place. So I'd ask you to consider those words that were in. Look at that list in uh, 1 Thessalonians. And we could also look as we close out. Uh, let's go to Galatians. We might as well close it out with some strong teaching from Paul. And start in verse 16, which says this. Think back to David's. Think what he said. How, who can dwell in this place? Who can dwell on your holy hill? And Paul says this, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, Envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, for <clears throat> that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. Against such things there is no law. You could fit that, you can fit 22 and 23 right into what. You can interpose that into Psalm 15 and say, oh, these are some more examples of how I'm to live. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh and its passions. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. So as Christ followers, as those who have put Jesus, who know the blood of the Lamb that has covered the sins, the, the life that He has lived, the completion of the law that He has done, that going to the cross is, is the work that He has done, that He has accepted, has taken on the wrath of God, has risen again, sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for all those who believe in Him at this moment. Work out your salvation. Work out that sanctification in your life. Seek to be like this. Look at these words. Don't, don't just leave today and forget these, these passages of Scripture. Look back to them. Don't listen to my words. Look at the Scripture and say, oh, this is what I should look like. Am I, am I showing this, demonstrating this in my life today? Is my life looking more and more like this today? And when I fall, repent. 
and know that the that that Jesus has finished it all, that it was to tell us die, it is finished, it is complete, it is done, no more to do. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day, and thank you for all those who could attend today. Thank you for your word that edifies us, that, 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 that glorifies you, God, that we would glorify you in our lives, God, that you would help us with our sanctification, that we desire to be more holy because you are holy, 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 that you are the Lord God Almighty, not us, that we would come humbly before you, God, that we would ask that the light of your uh, your holiness shine into our hearts, shine those shine upon those dark places, those things, those areas in our lives that we need to take care of, that we need to rectify in our lives. Continue to be with us throughout this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You would stand